very good morning to you all. I do hope you enjoyed last week's commissioning service, if you were able to be there as much as I did. There used to be an old joke, I think it really came from, uh, from Monty Python, uh, or it might possibly even have been the goodies, that said, uh, if you enjoyed that half as much as I did, then I enjoyed it twice as much as you. But I really did love it. Um, it was lovely to see so many guests coming to see off both Kirsty on her, um, her departure into the mission field, but also all the graduands from this year, who we're sending out, in a way, also as missionaries, into their future lives. Today we find ourselves back in 2 Corinthians, and we're picking up where Jason left off, uh, chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Corinthians. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there right away. Um, If everything works, the words will come up on the screen. But it's always good to read along in your own regular Bible. It kind of helps your eye to notice where things are on the page. And if, of course, you have a version other than our preferred ESV, it'll also help you to pick up different nuances as we read together. A recent cartoon in Private Eye depicted good old Charlie Brown, Snoopy, and their chums, approaching the editor's desk at the newspaper office with the words, we want a raise, we're fed up working for peanuts. (laughs) I wonder if you're going to spot the linguistic link between the Peanuts cartoons and the following little cameo from my past life. When I was a copper in London, my colleagues had a phrase for those calls which came in that you could tell right from the word go were going to result in a lot of time and effort expended and no good result at all. They called those calls a load of grief. I soon became something of an expert in resolving those petty issues quite quickly. So uh, it was a double-edged sword because I got assigned to quite a few of them. And I used to reflect as I drove to, uh, to give another member of the great British public what we used to call a good listening to. I used to reflect on how, at least in one respect, I was finally becoming more Christ-like. For I truly was, on those occasions, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. (laughs) Well, the link between that little story and Charlie Brown is, of course, the expression, good grief. Today's uh, Today's passage does move on from that subject, but it's important to note, even before we get going, that everything that follows flows entirely from Paul's definition of good grief. If you want a title for this talk, I want to call it Prove It. Subtitle, Grief, Grace, Generosity and Gathering in the Christian Life. I'm going to take a sip of water, then let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 8. Even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I I did regret it, for I, I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter, 
So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Well, I'm sure you spotted the four G's in there. Grief, grace, generosity, And right at the end, that word gathering. But you might be wondering why I'd want to call a talk on this passage, prove it. As you may have noticed, the word prove occurs three times in this passage. I did kind of stress it subtly, so you might pick it up. In fact, the Greek uses three different words with three different meanings. But in each case, the force of the phrase, the sense, the outcome of the argument is one and the same. Something that was thought or believed or hoped to be the case has been or will be proved true by concrete measurable facts in verse 11 the corinthians extreme reaction to the hurtful letter proved that they're now innocent of the faults for which paul had disciplined them 
In verse 14, the report Titus gave of his reception in Corinth proved that every good thing Paul said about them was really true. And in verse 8, the genuineness of their love will be proved, or not, by how they measure up to the generosity of the Macedonians. Words must lead to deeds, or no one will be convinced, not even ourselves. Theory has to produce solid fact. Faith has to result in action. There has to be a reconciliation in our lives between belief and practice. Now, as Tim Keller points out in his excellent book, Center Church, which I've started and haven't finished yet, we could all do with a clearer understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and also a greater ability to communicate it in appropriate ways to our various cultures. But we'll never even get the chance to explain our beliefs unless we're living the kind of lives that fit with all our fine words. Who wants to hear some bizarre theory of a life-changing encounter with Christ from a person whose life is obviously completely unchanged? But in fact, the proofs in this passage are important not just for the sake of the gospel, certainly not only to Paul as he writes the letter, they're vitally important as well to the Corinthians as they read it. And they're important, I want to suggest, also to us. Paul didn't write, verse 12, for the benefit of the unnamed wrongdoer or the sufferer, who is possibly, probably Paul himself. He wrote specifically for the sake of the whole Corinthian church. Why? So that their earnestness, their diligence, their determination to do the right thing might be revealed, verse 12, to themselves. I think when it comes to faith, we sometimes shy away from words like proof. As evangelicals, we've probably been brought up to run a mile from anything that smacks of salvation by works. We read in Hebrews, didn't we? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, not seen, etc., etc. And quite rightly, as good evangelicals, we often quote Paul in Ephesians 2. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. But here we find the self-same author looking for proof of faith. He's not interested in hearing another affirmation of their adherence to a set of beliefs. He wants to see concrete results from their faith. He's looking for proof. Proof of God's grace in them, proof of their faith in God. He finds it, and he looks to find it, not in their words, but in their actions and attitudes. He doesn't just want this for himself as their overseer. He wants them to see it for themselves, to understand what God has really done in their lives. So it's not just a case of the well-known phrase of Jesus, by their fruits shall you know them. It's more a case of, By your fruits shall you know and understand yourselves. As long as we leave faith a merely theoretical matter, believing that God has saved us through Jesus, but never looking for a real change in our lives, our faith is a poor thing indeed. In fact, James in his letter, chapter 2, verse 14, issues the following challenge. What good is it if someone has faith and doesn't have deeds. Can faith like that save him? In the teachings of Jesus as well, 
You'd be, you have a very hard job finding any suggestion that we're going to be justified by what we believe, what we think. Again and again, he tells us we'll be judged on what we do. And remember what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees when they came to be baptized. He wasn't particularly impressed. Come back when you've produced fruit worthy of repentance, you brood of vipers. In other words, I'll baptize you, fine. Once you, your lives prove that you've really changed. The four G words that we're going to look at today, grief, grace, generosity, and gathering, all have to be interpreted in the light of this central challenge. We say we have faith, well, prove it. If not for a world that's dying to see some proof of the goodness of God, at least let's prove it for our own sake. So proof number one, grief, good grief. Chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. The noun grief and the verb to grieve appear a total of eight times in this section. But Paul is keen to point out that not all grief is the same. Initially, on a purely emotional level, he was sorry to have grieved them. But he soon changed his mind, verse 11, when he saw what a positive change that grief had produced. Gone is the uncaring arrogance he once had to chide them for, replaced by eagerness to clear themselves as if his opinion actually mattered to them after all. Indignation against and punishment of the wrongdoer. Fear of God, or perhaps of losing favour with Paul and co. Longing, presumably to be reconciled with them. And exemplary zeal for God, rather than the lazy assumptions of what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. So he's not sorry to have caused them the kind of grief that led to repentance. And your Charlie Brown fans among you will be glad to hear that there is such a thing as good grief. But as Paul says in verse 10, not all grief is good. Not all grief is helpful. Worldly grief is not life-giving and transformative. It's pointless. It's destructive. It can become a trap that we can't escape, leading eventually to death, not life. We all of us grieve, and we should. Sad stuff happens. We're supposed to be sad when sad stuff happens. But may God grant us the grace to grieve well, to grieve in his presence, not alone. May we learn to grieve in a way that leads to life, not death, that leads to himself, not to selfishness, to repentance, not resentment. And it's quite right, too, that like the Corinthians, our own conduct should sometimes grieve us, too. But when that happens, we have to learn to repent humbly and move on into life. Not stay doing ourselves in for failing to live up to our oh-so-high personal standards of holiness. The latter is not repentance at all. It's just a, a subtle or less subtle form of arrogance. It leads to death, not life. Verses 13 to 16 show the positive outcome of the Corinthians' good grief as far as Paul himself is concerned. Now at last, he seems sure that his personal reconciliation with them is complete. They've proved it. And so we at last come to a turning point in the letter. Now he feels able to bring up another matter, which, though secondary, is actually very important. That is completing the collection that he's taking up for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. But here, as always, Paul has his eye on the spiritual benefit to his readers, not just on the financial rescue of their brothers and sisters 
in Jerusalem. If we see what follows as just an appeal for money, we're missing the point. They have felt the grief that leads to repentance. Now he wants them to understand a bit more about God's grace, how to receive it and pass it on to others through generosity, and how, to th- how they should be thinking about financial blessing. We have to receive it as a gift from God. We don't earn it by our own talents or by our own hard work. We gather it where God left it for us to find, like the Israelites gathering manna in the desert. That's what that reference is to. The Corinthians still have a bit more proving to do, but the remainder of our passage is loaded with reference to grace. So let's go there first. Proof two, grace. Chapter eight, verses one, six, seven, and nine. Grace is, I think, one of those tricky Bible words, the sort of word that we assume we know what it means until we actually have to explain it to somebody. And then it becomes rather difficult. It slips away from us. For me, its principal meaning is best summed up in the simple Sunday school formula, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's pretty neat. But as this passage shows, that's not quite the end of the story. Grace is not just something that we receive from God as a free gift. It's also something that we're supposed to exercise, something that we're supposed to extend to other people. Jesus said, you've received freely, now go and give freely. In verse 1, God's grace is good for everyone concerned. It's been bestowed on the Macedonians through Paul's preaching of the gospel, but it's also been bestowed on Paul and his team, bringing them unexpected success. We sense his wonder in these verses as he describes what happened among those dirt poor people who'd never heard the gospel before as they received his message and committed themselves not only to God, but specifically to him and his team, verse 5. Then, verse 4, they went further and actually begged for the chance to give the Jerusalem uh, church something in the collection. Even, verse 3, many of them giving beyond what they could actually afford. God's boundless grace to them was reflected in their own lives as they extended the same extravagant grace as God had given to them, to others. This, Paul suggests, is what God's grace really looks like when push comes to shove. True faith, true acceptance of God's grace will result in giving ourselves not only to God, but verse 5, also to those he's placed in authority in our churches. Now, as one who is supposed to be in authority in this church, of course, I find that embarrassing to say. One is, after all, British. But it seems that that embarrassment actually puts me in rather good company could sense the same thing in Paul's writing. He too seems to be speaking about a level of personal commitment that he wasn't looking for at all. But just because our leaders aren't looking for it doesn't mean we wouldn't benefit from giving it. Paul clearly identifies such commitment with God's grace at work in our lives. Then it becomes up to those leaders not to abuse it, as tragically they so often do. But... Accepting God's grace also leads on to something else, which we find clearly stated in verses 6 and 7. Completing the collection of money is not once but twice uh, referred to as an act of grace. In verse 8, the concept of proving pops up again in relation to this very thing. That love is going to be put to the test. It's going to be measured up, if you like, against the 
dedication shown by the Macedonians in their extreme generosity. And in case this human challenge isn't enough, in verse 9, Paul then lays down the divine challenge. Macedonians were financially poor, but the little they gave, like the widow's might in, in Luke 21, was a great deal to them. In fact, it was more than they could afford. Now Paul compares this generosity with that of Jesus, who once had infinite power, infinite spiritual riches at his disposal before he became human. But he gave it all up, even to the point of sacrificing his own life, so that we might become rich. That was the measure of the grace of Christ, whom we Christians say that we follow. What will the act of grace look like when the wealthy Corinthians are now invited to take part in it? How is it going to measure up to the human and divine standards that Paul has set before them? For that matter, how will ours? The grace of God in our lives is supposed to be proved, worked out visibly, in the way that we willingly give up our time, energy and money for his sake. And that leads us, of course, to the very closely linked proof number three, generosity. Interestingly, though Paul commends the poverty-stricken Macedonians for their almost reckless generosity, and even holds them up as an example to the wealthy Corinthians, he does not ask the same standard of them. As he says in verse 12, a willing gift given according to what one can afford is the acceptable standard. There's no need to go beyond that, as the Macedonians did. But I suppose the trouble with defining that is working out what we can and can't afford. A couple in our previous church once approached me after a talk on giving and told me the following story. I'll just put it in my own words, but this is the gist. Two years ago, we gave up on tithing to the church because we thought we couldn't afford it. Now we got the baby. But after a year, we found we had so many unexpected bills But when we totted it up, we found it came to exactly a tenth of our income, the amount we were giving to the church before. So we thought we might as well give our tenth back to the church again. And this year, our income has gone up slightly, and our outgoings have gone down massively. We haven't missed the money at all, and it's a whole lot less hassle. For them, defining what they could afford had become a problem. The Corinthians' good faith has already been proved by their good grief and by everything that resulted from it. Now they have a chance to prove that they are indeed living under the same kind of grace as the Macedonians. And they'll do it principally by their generosity. What we can afford is, for most of us, principally a matter of what we choose to prioritize. Do I say that I can't afford to buy my wife flowers because I have to buy a couple of beers in the pub? Or do I say I can't afford to go to the pub because I have to buy my wife some flowers? If I can't afford to give to my church, but I can still afford to go out for coffee or for a meal or to the pictures, then hasn't something gone wrong with my calculations? And as verse 10 suggests, sometimes acting generous precedes being generous. The Corinthians not only started giving, but even wanting to give. Now, as they excel in every good thing, verse 7, it's time to excel in this act of grace too. But in verse 8, Paul doesn't want this to come across as a command. It's just an opportunity for them to prove to themselves, first and foremost, once again, that they are living the life of faith. And he's confident that they will. 
This is a letter about reconciliation. Reconciliation between the world and God, between the Corinthians and Paul and his team, and between the various inconsistent parts of our lives, like what we say and what we do. And there's another specific reconciliation here between willingness to give, which is something we all feel, and actually giving, which is something not all of us actually get around to. And as Paul says in verse 10, this is for their own good. Once they finish the job they've started, they'll have one more proof to themselves that the work of God in their lives has been and remains effective. Believe it or not, it actually feels good to give. But the benefit doesn't stop there, as verse 14 suggests. God has ways of rewarding our generosity. It's not that we can buy blessing, that's not how it works. And I don't think verse 14 is necessarily suggesting a financial return for a financial investment in the kingdom. But the Jerusalem church, poor as it was in money, must have been extremely rich in theological understanding, in spiritual gifts, in first-hand accounts of Jesus' life, etc., etc., etc. And perhaps there's a suggestion that if they could afford to come, the great big-name apostles like Peter, James, and John, might be likely to visit not only Corinth, but all the other churches as well. And that would benefit everyone. Generosity works not only for the giver and the receiver, it also works for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, proof four, gathering, not gain on the brain. Verse 15, all on its own, shows another potential proof that we are living a new life in Christ that we're not the same anymore. The money-motivated mammon mindset of our age has financial gain on the brain. Don't leave Europe. The value of your house will go down. Oh, let's get out of Europe. We'll be quids in, man. Why are you still working as a teacher? Don't you know with your background you could earn more than twice as much in the financial sector? You've got to speculate to accumulate leverage the capital you have. Stretch yourself to the utmost on your first mortgage. Then when you trade up, it'll be that much easier. So goes the wisdom of the age. But what has it to do with God's wisdom? What about voting in the upcoming referendum for what you think will most benefit the poor? What about committing your life to a job that you find satisfying and where you know you're doing good in God's world? What about freeing yourself from debt so you can live more simply and with less stress? What about retaining a bit of disposable income deliberately so you can remain a generous person? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with earning the big money. I hope some of you do, because it might improve the status of the church financially. But that is as long as you can continue to live a fulfilling life in Christ. The sad fact is that sometimes wealth hinders more than it helps. Hence, Jesus remarks about rich men entering the kingdom of heaven. In Exodus terms, we have been set free from the crushing power of Egypt so we can make our way into the promised land and serve God there. Not to go round in a great big circle and back into Egypt again. We are supposed to be living, as St. Bob of Dylan eloquently puts it, by a different set of rules. And with the Exodus mindset that we worked so hard last year to, um, to develop, 
it should be easy to see exactly what verse 15 is getting at. When God sent Israel manna, bread out of heaven, lying on the ground, morning, morning by morning, the deal was, gather enough for your family day by day. Those who tried to stockpile it found a minging maggoty mess in the morning. What God provides in the wilderness is sufficiency, not superfluity. In providing for our families, our job is not to force a rich living from an unpromising environment, but to just go out and pick up with gratitude what God has provided for us. And to put this verse truly in its context, as I know you're all itching for me to do, the point in this particular argument is principally one of fairness. Seeing that within God's household, no one is going hungry while somebody else is saving up for his second Ferrari. God's provision is for all. And where there's an imbalance, the excess enjoyed by some should supply the want experienced by others. The final proof of a changed life in this passage, the fourth sign of a life reconciled to God, is a gathering mindset where money is concerned. A work life of gathering, not grinding. Of gleaning grain, not grasping gain. This passage challenges us lovingly, gently, but inexorably to live lives where what we do is reconcile fully to what we believe. We who say we live by faith, prove it. Prove it when appropriate by godly grief. But prove it constantly by a life of grace shared with others. A life of generous giving in a self-centered world. A life of gathering what God gives and trusting him for tomorrow. Now just before I ask you to stand and I'll say a prayer. Um, this, this may apply to, to one or more people in this room. Um, I think it probably applies to several. This morning I went out, as is my wont, to, to feed the collared doves who come to my hand for grain. And um, this morning, the, the one who came was, was a bit skittish. He wouldn't come to my hand. He went all around, all around, all around, all around. And in the end, I got fed up and went back inside with the, uh, emptied the grain away. And all he got was the bit that had fallen out of my hand um, by accident. And I think some of you um, feel or feel that you are or you are living in that state where you won't come to God's hand to get the full meal and all you're getting is the scraps. It's because you don't see that you can approach without fear. You can approach boldly the throne of grace, as we read in Hebrews. And if that's you, I really want you to take this opportunity to receive from the Holy Spirit. Why don't you just stand and I'll say a prayer and then we can get on with it. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your wonderful work in us. For the fact that you have come into the world as a human being. That you've given up your heavenly throne, given up all the wealth of heaven and become a human being like us. And not only that, but you've, you've taught us words of life. You've healed the sick, you've raised the dead, cleansed the lepers, and told us to do the same. And that you've 
gone to the cross for us, that you've died in our place so that we can be set free from our sins, that truly you have become poor so that we may become rich. We come to you, Lord Jesus, this morning begging you for hearts that are able to receive that riches from your hand. Who don't wait until you've gone away and then pick up the last crumbs that you, you happen to drop. But who come to your hand to be fed and filled. So come Holy Spirit and move among us now we pray. We invite you to take our lives. We give you our heart. We give you our lives. We give you our possessions. We belong to you. And we don't want to be anywhere else. There's no place we'd rather be. Amen.